Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figger. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Simon Keller. We'll be talking about his new book, Partiality, which is newly published with Princeton University Press. Simon is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Victoria University in Wellington. Our moral lives are shaped by a deep commitment to the moral equality of all persons. This thought drives us to think, for example, that each person's life is of equal moral importance, that each person is deserving of equal moral regard, and that no one's life is intrinsically more morally important than any others. However, our lives are also organized around what might be called special relationships. These are friendships, marriages, familial relations, and such. These relationships carry with them duties to show certain others a special kind of regard. Indeed, we would find fault with a father who did not show a certain degree of partiality for his own children. There seems to be a conflict here, and in order to manage it, we need a clear account of the moral nature of duties and reasons of partiality. In his new book, Partiality, Simon Keller considers many of the leading accounts of partiality and finds them lacking. So he develops an original view according to which our reasons and duties of partiality arise from the relationships that we share with others, which permit us to respond properly to the value of those individuals. Now, partiality is an intriguing and rich book. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Simon Keller. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm not too bad. It's uh, it's morning here in Wellington, and um, excellent. Listening to the sound of jackhammers outside my window, but otherwise doing well. <laughs> well, we can't we can't hear the jackhammers here, which good. is good. Um, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Philosophy today. Thanks, and thank you very much for having me. Sure, no problem. Today on New Books and Philosophy, my guest is Simon Keller. His new book is titled Partiality. And it's just been published with Princeton University Press. Now, this is a concise, um, but don't let the, the, the shortness of the book fool you. It is a very deep and rigorously argued book that's devoted to a longstanding and I think very deep problem in moral philosophy and I should say in, in moral life. That problem uh, is this, very roughly. Um, it seems that we're committed to the idea that every person is of equal moral value or is a moral equal in some sense. And yet 
we are at the same time also inclined to think that some people are entitled to special treatment from us, um, perhaps additional regard from us. Think, for example, of parents and their children. Um, being persons, we might say, uh, children are moral equals, um, yet we think that their parents have some kind of special relationship with their kids, which permits and maybe even demands partiality in the way they treat them. Um, the puzzle then is, is how to fit this view of partiality into our broadly egalitarian moral view. Um, there's a lot to say here. Um, but first, Simon, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Right. Well, I'm, uh, I work in, in New Zealand at Victoria University in Wellington, uh, but I'm Australian. I grew up in Melbourne in Australia and uh, did my undergraduate degree at Monash University in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to have some story that made it seem as though I was destined to, to be a philosopher, <laughs> but, but I don't really. I, I, did, I studied arts and science at Monash, and I chose that because it enabled me to focus as, as little as possible. <laughs> um, and I, did, I ended up uh, doing a lot of English literature and psychology and philosophy and really enjoyed all three of them and thought seriously about uh, going on with each of them at one time or another. Uh, but at the time at Monash, this was in, uh, I guess, the mid-90s, there was just an outstanding group of philosophers at Monash who, as well as being very good at what they, were di at what they did, were very, very welcoming and made it a, just a, a wonderful place to be a student. So it was mainly for that reason, because I wanted to hang around with them a bit more, that I chose to continue with philosophy. So I did uh, an honours honors year in philosophy at Monash, and then, uh, and then moved to Princeton University, where I was a graduate student. And since right. then, yeah, I've worked in uh, at Boston University for five years, which was a terrific experience. Then a couple of years back at Melbourne University, and now, uh, now in New Zealand. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! I'm a native of New Jersey, so um, oh, right, when right. Say that they're from Princeton. I, <laughs> I feel a connection. Um, well, very good. Um, why don't we get to, to talking about the book then, is, sure. if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so first, um, you know, a moment ago when I was giving my little uh, opening uh, bit about your book, um, I, I, I sketched very briefly and very, very roughly, I should say, um, the sort of a, the problem of partiality, which is the, the, the main problem to which uh, your book is addressed. Um, but I'm thinking now that maybe we need to begin with a slightly more fine-grained um, account of that problem. So why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you sometimes in the book called the puzzle uh, to which the book is addressed? Right. Right. Well, I guess a good way of starting off in thinking about the sort of puzzles that partiality raises is by thinking about uh, – well, why don't we start? There's a famous example of – Bernard Williams's that's uh, very widely discussed. Mm. And the case is this. I'm sure many people have already heard it, but um, it bears retelling. The, uh, the puzzle is you imagine yourself standing uh, on the end of a pier or anyway, standing somewhere uh, near a big body of water. And in the water, sadly, there are two people drowning. And you have time to save one of them, but not both. Uh, one of them is your wife and the other one is a stranger. Uh, now, the question is, um, not so much which one should you save. Pretty much everybody agrees 
that it would be perfectly permissible to save your wife. Indeed, it would be a very strange decision if you chose to save the other person. Um, the, the question is, what justifies you in saving your wife? Or what gives you a good reason to save your wife rather than the stranger? Now, I think that the case raises two distinct sorts of problems, which I'll talk about in a second. But I always, when, when I give this case, I always feel the need to mention um, a wonderful little passage in Marilyn Friedman's book, What Are Friends For? In which oh, she, my colleague. Uh, oh, she is, right. Oh, well, yeah, you're lucky. She describes this case and a number of others that philosophers have given um, in sort of trying to make vivid the problem of partiality. And she points out that they all involve cases of women in distress and men uh, rushing to save them. Uh, and the question is always, what, you know, how should men feel when going to save their, you know, the women? Uh, right. So there is maybe a, a sort of an element of um, <laughs> a little an element, unfortunate element of sexism in a lot of these cases. But this is the way that Williams gives it anyway. So we'll stick with his example. Um, but the two puzzles that it raises are firstly a strictly philosophical one. Uh, as it happens, um, most of our most influential moral theories are what we might call impartialist, meaning that they start from the conviction that all humans and perhaps other creatures as well are equally morally valuable and that to the extent that we act ethically, we treat all morally valuable things in the same ways. So. If you're a rights theorist, then you might say, look, all humans have rights and to act ethically is to treat, is to respect everybody's rights. If you're a utilitarian, uh, you know, all humans and, and various other creatures are sentient. To act ethically is to maximize happiness uh, regardless of, of whose happiness it is. So one problem is the theoretical problem. How can someone who accepts one of these impartialist theories uh, explain why it would be permissible or even obligatory for you to save your wife in this situation rather than the stranger. After all, presumably, your wife and the stranger are equally morally valuable. The stranger, presumably, too, has special relationships, has many people who will miss her, and so on. So that's a puzzle for, uh, for impartialist theory and, and one that uh, you know, can, be, can be dealt with in or approached in various different ways. Um, but the second puzzle, which is the one that it's related, but it's a slightly different, and it's the one that I do my best to focus on in the book, right. is just uh, a puzzle that I think arises independently of those theoretical commitments. Uh, and it's just this. It just seems, whatever your theory says, it just seems true that the fact that that woman is my wife makes no difference to how important uh, she is, morally speaking. Her moral importance comes from elsewhere. Uh, so the question is, how could that connection with me ground a reason for me to treat her differently from others? And again, I'm not, in asking that question, I'm not expressing skepticism about whether it does ground such a reason. Just saying that it's uh, a difficult question, and I think a much tougher question than it seems to be on the surface exactly what sort of explanation we can give for why uh, the predicament of my wife has a, certain, has a special moral salience for me that the predicament of, of the other person drowning doesn't. 
Um, so again, there are various ways in which that can be explained, but uh, part of the puzzle, I suppose, is that I think that um, often what look like quite good explanations of why the plight of my wife in this case has a special moral salience for me turn out actually not to be very good or to, to, um, to not go nearly as far as they seem to on the surface. Right. Um, and, and before we get to, I mean, a, a large part of, of the book is, is devoted to sort of weighing the, the benefits um, uh, and promise of, of various accounts. Um, but let me just break in and just ask a, a quick question, um, because you've been talking about sort of the reasons that uh, one is supplied with and, you know, maybe by the fact that your wife is drowning. Um, uh, but a lot of the book is driven by um, a concern to capture what you call the phenomenology of of partiality. That is the feeling, uh, we might say, of the person um, – you know the, the the Williams the Williams character who's who's on the pier as it were, who isn't only supplied with reasons in some um, uh, academic sense, but who actually feels the pull uh, of the reasons that he's got uh, to to jump in and 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 save his wife. Um, and it seems that you're keen to give an account um, in response to this uh, this puzzle that that preserves or, or accounts for uh, that. that um, uh, that phenomenology. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Uh, well, in Williams's original discussion, uh, he makes a great deal of the question of what sorts of thoughts, as he put it, or how many thoughts ought to go right. through the mind of the husband before uh, you know he jumps in and saves his wife. Um, and his concern is that if you give what's ultimately an impartialist explanation of his reason to save his wife, something like, well, you know, uh, we ought to maximize utility and under circumstances like these, it maximizes utility if we each look after our own or something, uh, then that right. can't uh, have any correspondence with what we'd hope the husband was actually thinking as he jumps in to save his wife. Um, and often that point is taken to show that uh, the best explanation of the husband's reasons for saving his wife in such a case should be self-effacing. That is, that it should offer one story about why the husband's act is justified, but then a different story about what considerations ought to actually move the husband as he acts. Right. And then there's a debate to be had about whether a self-effacing theory is, is acceptable for various you know, theoretical uh, you know, in light of various theoretical considerations. But for me... Um, and I'm sorry, can I just jump yeah. in and just make, make sure that, um, uh, that we've, we've got... So you, you, a self-effacing theory then, um, as such, would be uh, a theory which um, uh, gives an account of the justification of an act right. that has to also make a claim that that justifying story shouldn't be part of the agent's motivation who is thereby justified. Is that it? Right, exactly. So the easiest, um, you know, the easiest example is if you think of a, a utilitarian uh, account of many kinds of action, uh, it seems quite natural, in fact, maybe even required uh, for a utilitarian to say something like, look, what justifies your act in a certain case is that it maximizes happiness. But if you perform the act with the goal of maximizing happiness, then you won't do a very good job 
of maximizing happiness. So it's better that you perform the act with some other goal or with some other thought or while being moved by some other consideration. Right, right, right. Good. Yeah. So that's the idea. Uh, and uh, anyway, so as I say, I sort of feel that the reason why the phenomenology of partiality, and I apologize for that phrase, but, you know, the, uh, the reason why it's important to pay attention to um, what it's like to act out of love or out of concern for someone with whom you share a special relationship is important, is that in the cases in which we do something out of love, it often seems as though we're seeing things in a certain way. That is, we're taking some consideration to be real and important and to make sense of our actions. And it also seems as though we're seeing things correctly. So if I act out of love and do something, you know, for my kids or a friend or, uh, or a spouse or whoever, then often it can seem, uh, I don't know, in looking to their eyes or th looking into their eyes or thinking about their interests or considering how this is going to affect them as though I'm really seeing why. I ought to perform the act, why the act makes sense, why perhaps not performing the act is just not an option for me. And I guess that my sense is that if that's right, and if we can give some content to the experience of acting out of love or partiality, that is, if we can say, when you uh, have that experience, you're treating a certain reasonably determinate fact or uh, consideration as though it's a reason then it would be a real cost of any philosophical explanation of partiality if it were to say that when we have that experience, we're actually seeing things wrongly or we're making a mistake. We're treating uh, the value of our loved one or the value of our relationship or whatever else it might be as though it matters, as though it calls to us to perform certain acts, when really it doesn't. Really, the explanation of why we should perform the act is quite different. Right. So for me, that yeah. So for me, that offers a kind of, uh, I guess, a defeasible, uh, but nevertheless, sort of significant starting point for thinking about uh, what reasons we have to give special treatment to those that we love or with whom we share special relationships. Um, yeah. Right. Well, excellent. So why, why don't we then um, uh, sort of move on to the, the core of the book. Um, now, it seems just, um, you know, commonsensically, I would guess, that if we are beginning from the, the premise that there are um, these reasons of partiality or maybe something strong, maybe duties or obligations of partiality in certain cases. Right. Um, it seems then that, uh, and you say this in the book, well, we've got three options on, on you know, where to look for the account uh, of, of these reasons or obligations. Um, we could look um, to ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, we could look to the relationships that we have with the, the persons to whom uh, we might owe these obligations or who might be the source of the reasons. Um, or we could look at the, the, the other people. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that was, I, I thought really fascinating about the book um, was that uh, you give the third of these answers. You say right. that 
the right account of partiality is ultimately an account of the value of other people. Um, and I, I want to sort of put it that way because um, uh, I, I think it's it's neat when a um, when a philosopher um, uh, says something that at least w- as I was reading it uh, seemed kind of counterintuitive. I guess that is, it sounded to me like. Um, the, the more likely sources of these reasons of partiality would have to be either some fact about me and what my commitments are and what my aims are, or some fact about the relations that I have with others. And um, sort of like the last place I would have looked uh, uh, for the right explanation would be with the others. Um, so um, l- let's then just take this stepwise. And and uh, and I was I really moved, I should say, and found quite compelling um, uh, the, the critical arguments in the book. Uh, what you argue ultimately is that um, neither the the view that uh, partiality comes from facts about me, the person who is required to be partial, uh, nor from the from facts about our my relations with with the people to whom I'm required to show partial treatment. Um, so neither uh, the the project's view, as you call it, nor the relationships view is quite adequate. So can you run us through some of those arguments? Because I found them very compelling. Right. Well, the. Uh you're completely right, and I sort of try to play this up a little bit rhetorically in the book. Um, <laughs> right. When you outline the three views, uh, yeah, it does seem the first reaction you have is to look at the one which I say I'm going to defend and think, oh, well, we know that's not right, so that's not worth discussing. <laughs> um, right. But maybe we can talk about the other two first, and that might, you know, uh, sure. <laughs> gain me some sympathy. But um, <laughs> so the first of the views is what I call the project's view. And the reason that I call it that is because uh, Bernard Williams uh, gives his explanation of reasons of partiality by referring to what he calls our ground projects. And his explanation has been taken up and and refined by many others. Um, But the idea of the view is that, again, to use the example, the thing that makes a difference for me between my wife and the stranger is that my wife plays a crucial role in some of my most central commitments. Indeed, the commitments that sort of constitute me as a distinctive agent and give structure to all of my decisions and give me a reason to go on. Uh, And if you make that a general account, then what it says is that uh, we each have these ground projects that define us as individual agents and they generate reasons, special agent relative reasons. I have a reason to pursue my project. You have a reason to pursue yours. And often uh, those projects incorporate our relationships with others. So that's the view. Uh, and I have a number of sort of structural concerns about it. Um, for example, as, as others uh, have noted, it's a little bit hard to see how the project view could give rise, could explain the existence of duties of partiality. It seems more natural to think that the project's view gives a nice explanation of why we're permitted to pursue our own projects, even when we could perhaps make the world better from an impartial perspective by doing something else. But it's harder for it to explain why we should have a duty to do so or why it would be wrong of us not to pursue our own projects. But just to connect up with what we were talking about before with regard to the experience of partiality, um, 
it seems to me as though there is a distinctive experience of being drawn to act out of concern for one of your major projects. And it seems to me like it's just an utterly different experience from the experience of being drawn to do the right thing for somebody who you love. So if I can use um, uh, a, a little example that, that I describe in the book, right. um, imagine that you have, that you're writing a dissertation and it's all finished and you save it to a memory stick and then immediately afterwards your computer crashes. Uh, but that's no problem. You have your dissertation on the memory stick and you can now walk into work and print it out and hand it in and you'll be all done. And suppose that on the way, uh, you decide to stop and um, have a nice walk by the lake and, you know, enjoy the feeling of having finished your dissertation. Um, unfortunately, as you're standing there, uh, you drop the memory stick into the lake and it's slowly sinking out of sight. Um, meanwhile, I'm not saying this is a very realistic example. <laughs> meanwhile, somebody else whom you know to be in exactly your situation, uh, not someone who you know well, not someone you have a special relationship with, but nevertheless someone you know a little bit about, has dropped their memory stick into the lake as well. And uh, they can't swim. So you now have a choice. Uh, there are two memory sticks, two dissertations sinking off into the lake and you can only you only have time to save one of them. Now, I'm imagining that you would probably jump in and save your own. Right. Um, but what I'm interested in are the sort of <laughs> thoughts or the, the, the kind of panic that would go through your mind as you're moved to do so. And uh, it seems to me that this is a case in which quite sensibly your thoughts would be drawn to the importance of the dissertation for you and the place that it has in your, in your ground projects. So you'd look at the dissertation sinking out of view and you'd think to yourself, oh my goodness, think of all the years I've invested in this, dis this dissertation. Think of how different my life will be if I'm not able to hand it in today. Uh, think of how much of myself, in a sense, is sort of sinking off into the lake. And then you dive in and save it. Right. Now, it strikes me that you wouldn't want uh, your spouse to have the same sorts of thoughts when she jumps in to save you from drowning. Uh, someone who sees, you know, if I see my wife drowning and I think to myself, oh my goodness, think of how much of me is sinking out of sight there. Think of how much I've invested in this relationship. Think of, you know, how much will be lost for me uh, considering my projects if I don't jump in and save her. That seems to me like it's not uh, a way of capturing accurately the experience of acting out of love and certainly not a way of capturing the sort of uh, panic that we would hope would, you know, overtake one of our loved ones if they saw us drowning and not what we want to, to motivate them. It just all seems a little bit too self-directed. Right. So it's not a, it's not a thought too many. It's a, it's, you're it's a, claiming that the, it's a, it's a thought of the wrong kind, I guess, might be the way to capture it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, uh, the thought is that if there really is some determinate reason or consideration that strikes us as important uh, in those sorts of situations, then it's not one that refers us straight back to our own projects. It seems, seems like right. it's something else. Right, right. Well, good. So um, 
So the project's view then looks like it's, um, again, uh, from the point of view of the experience of things, uh, it looks like it's, it, 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 it can accommodate um, uh, what we might think should be accommodated. But um, I, I guess before reading your book, I was deeply drawn to the other of the views, right. which is the relationships view. Can you tell us about that and where it goes wrong? Right. And I should say it was uh, thinking about this view that actually got me started on the book. The book was originally uh, – so I, I guess the thing that uh, got me started, if I can, if I can uh, sure. go back to that for a second, yeah. uh, was thinking about uh, what seemed to me the fact that philosophers were much better at pointing out that partiality and love raise problems various moral theories, much better at doing that than at offering positive stories about what the uh, reasons are that would you know, ground partiality and uh, acts of love. And one exception to that trend was um, Sam Scheffler, who has a very nicely well-developed view according to which uh, it makes sense for us to as he puts it, value non-instrumentally our relationships. And right. on his account, to value a relationship non-instrumentally is to see it as a source of special responsibilities and more generally of special reasons. And by special, he means you know, agent relative, that is reasons that I have, but that right. not everybody else would. So that's one version of the relationships view and was sort of where I started uh, in thinking about the, the topic. Um, if I can just say quickly, there are, there are others. Um, so for Scheffler and also for Nico Kolodny, who has a, you know, a nice account of the nature of love along these right. lines, uh, the important thing is that relationships are, have a distinctive kind of value, or at least it's proper to value them in a distinctive way. Uh, so when I think about, I don't know, my marriage, uh, there's me and there's my wife, but then there's something else, the relationship between us, and that relationship can be you know, valuable or a proper object of, of valuing. Uh, another version of the view, which um, I think gets its best defense from Diane Jeske, Mm -hmm. is the view that uh, it's not so much that relationships are valuable, but rather that the fact that some relationship exists can just itself stand as an irreducible, uh, self-standing reason. So right. if you ask me, you know, why should I perform this act towards this person, the right answer might be, he's your son, where that's just, that's the end of the story. You state the existence of the relationship and... Uh, and you have your reason. So that's right. the relationships view. And uh, well, look, it has a great, it has many, many virtues, which I sort of try to do some justice to uh, in the book. Um, now, there are, I suppose, two main uh, objections that I try to make towards the relationships view. The first is just to try to make it clear that it's actually quite strange to think of relationships as value bearers or as things right. that stand in their own rights as having value or in some other way as giving reasons. Uh, and the way that I sort of try to make that point is to try to talk about what sorts of other implications might flow 
from the view that relationships can have value or stand as reasons in their own rights. And, um, yeah, what I try to show is that the view, at least on most uh, respectable ways of understanding value, has some really strange implications. Um, for example, uh, again, I'm not saying this is an unavoidable consequence, but, but it's one natural possible consequence. It may turn out that we have uh, reason to remain in a destructive relationship, that right. if a relationship yeah, is one that makes both of us angry and grumpy and so on all the time, or if it's a relationship in one of us in, in which one of us exploits the other, uh, there may yet be a reason to nourish the relationship and make it continue. Why? Because it has value in its own right, or because the fact that we share that relationship itself stands as a reason. So anyway, that's one of several little uh, right. objections that I make along those lines, and I try to, try to say that the obvious ways of getting around it don't work. Um, but then the other concern that I have about the relationships uh, view, which is a concern that will seem quite familiar by now, is that once again, the kind of uh, story it tells about what reasons we have to act well within special relationships turns out to be quite distant from the motives that we'd expect people to have as they act well within special relationships. And once again, I say it doesn't really do justice to Again, what I rather grandly call the phenomenology of partiality. Uh, right. And the way that I try to make this point is by showing that, um, again, there is a distinctive experience of acting out of regard for a relationship. I can do something for the sake of my marriage or do something for the sake of our friendship or for the sake of my relationship with my parent. But... It seems to me that that is actually not a very common way of being motivated. It's, it makes perfect sense in some circumstances, but it's not a very common way of being motivated to act well within a special relationship. And if that was the kind of motivation that someone had towards us generally, then we'd start to think that that person was not well motivated or didn't really love us for who we were. So the sorts of cases I talk about are a friend who in acting towards you is moved by thoughts of the value of your friendship or uh, a child who is motivated, you know, your child who might be motivated towards you um, always by thoughts of the parent-child relationship. Right. And, yeah, and I guess to, to go back to my favourite my favorite example, uh, it seems to me that someone having those sorts of thoughts as they dived in to save you from drowning. I mean, look, you'd be really happy they saved you from drowning, obviously. It doesn't really matter what they're thinking at the time, but still, someone who dived in with the thought, oh my goodness, my marriage is at stake. Uh, right. Or, oh dear, this relationship uh, won't survive if you drown. Uh, still isn't having the kinds of loving thoughts that we'd hope for. Right. So, before moving on, though, to um, to, 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 to the view that you, you, you defend in the book, um, uh, let me try one quick rejoinder on on the on behalf of the relationships view. Uh -huh. 
Um, why couldn't the relationships theorist, the person who thinks reasons of partiality derive from the relationships we have, why couldn't um, such a person say in response to your first point, which is the um, – sometimes in the book you say these are the just so. I, I ought to stay in this destructive relationship just so the relationship can continue, right? Um, you're saying, well, that's you – know, there are bad marriages. The fact that it's a marriage is not um, a source of reasons in, it, in and of itself because marriages can be bad. Um, why couldn't the person say, well, then we'll – We'll build a, a qualifier into the description of the relation. It's not just in virtue of its being a marriage that the relation gives me reasons of partiality. It's that it's a healthy marriage. Um, it's not just in virtue of the relationship between friends um, that uh, I have my reasons of partiality. It's a healthy friendship or uh, a proper friendship. Um, couldn't the I'm just wondering if the relationship theorists could try that. Right. Well, look, it's definitely the yeah the right move to make, I think. And uh, yeah, uh, in some ways, uh, it certainly makes things tougher um, for some <laughs> of my objections. But uh, look, I do consider the move, and I suppose what I at that point challenge the relationships theorists to do is to explain in what a healthy marriage or the healthiness of a marriage or a friendship consists. Right. And I think that the only plausible thing to do there is to start looking at the interests of the people directly involved and perhaps others as well. So you start saying something like, well, of course, when I talk about a healthy marriage, I mean one that is such that, I don't know, the, the, the two married people are... Uh, are happy, are able to flourish, uh, enjoy each other's company, um, communicate well, perhaps are made more likely to do nice things for other people, they're good friends to other people, they, I don't know, conceivably sure. raise healthy children or, or whatever else it might be. Uh, anyway, something along the lines of that explanation is, is what has to be given. And right. at that point, it seems to me that we've actually turned away from the value of the relationship considered in itself. Now we're explaining the value of the relationship by talking about what it does for individuals. And uh, that's fine. I think it's the right account to give. But I do think that it suggests that the reasons that we then see to be generated by the relationship are also going to be ultimately explained in terms of how individuals within the relationship can be better or worse off or can flourish or have their rights respected or whatever else. So I do think that once that move is made, we lose some of the motivation for sticking with the claim that ultimately it's about the relationship considered in itself. And we gain some motivation for moving to yeah, the view that I ultimately want to defend, which is that actually the relationship, while valuable, uh, uh, is valuable only because of what it does for the individuals. And if we want to understand our reasons within relationships, then um, it's on the value of individuals that we need to focus. Right. So good. Um, that's a very nice segue into your view then. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, tell us then. So the view is then, let me see if I get this right, that um, the source of our reasons of partiality is the value of 
the individuals with whom we share special relations. Is that is that how it runs? Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's a little hard to state in a way that doesn't make it sound silly straight off, but um, the idea is that when you, for example, are thinking about uh, saving your wife as you stand there uh, by the lake, um, your reason for saving her is not that you've got a certain commitment to her. It's not that you share a certain relationship with her directly, but rather that it's her, or if her name is Jane, it's Jane. So it's something about her uh, significance considered in her own right uh, that draws you on. The Look, I, I think the individual's view turns out to have been defended in quite different ways by a number of different philosophers who have written about uh, love especially. Um, and it's been, it's been defended in different ways. But one thing that you often find in those defences, I should say I'm thinking in particular of uh, Larry Blum's sort of particular <laughs> story about reasons of love and also David Bellarmine's Kantian story. Right. And both of these authors um, go back, as indeed do I, to a very alluring but slightly enigmatic uh, phrase of Iris Murdoch's where she says that to love someone well is to perform an exercise in really looking. Right. Where the idea is that, yeah, when you love someone, you, uh, you see them as they really are in a way that you can't see just any old person as they really are. And that this experience of really looking is an experience in which other things just kind of uh, fade from view, including uh, your own concerns and your own commitments and your own desires, and also including the relationship that you contingently share with this person. It's as though somehow being the sort of person you are and being in the relationship you're in is important, but only because it then allows you to see the other person as she really is. So that's the, uh, the thought, that somehow in seeing the other person, you're exposed to her value. And uh, sure, that happens within a relationship usually, but it's not the relationship uh, whose value is relevant here. And then, of course, the tricky thing is to say, first, so what is this value? And again, right. you know, Blum and Velleman and others give various different accounts of that. And then to say how does this in any way give you reason to respond differently to this person whose value you happen to be seeing in some very vivid way uh, as compared to other people who surely have the same kind of value even if you're not looking at it right now. Right. So can I just run a, a version of that second worry and, yeah. and see how you respond? So um, w w why – one might say something like the following, I suppose um, – Okay, I take the the the, the really looking thought. Um, okay, there are uh, th there's a way of really looking at a, at another, um, which um, spouses in healthy marriages um, are able to do, uh, and so um, that I, I I really can look at my wife and um, therefore understand or, or come to appreciate or come to perceive. Uh, her own per particular value, um, th that looks like an epistemic thing. That's how I know something about her value. 
um, that looks different from um, uh, saying that that's the source of, of special reasons. It's just I'm particularly well epistemically placed to appreciate the reasons that there are. It doesn't give me additional reasons. Mm-hmm. Does that seem um, – could somebody say that? Let me put it that yeah, way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, maybe I can start so with a little example that I think um, – yeah, it might be helpful, and then, then I'll come back to partiality itself. But, sure, sure. Um, so it seems to me that there's quite a difference between knowing that you have a reason to do something and knowing what that reason is. Right. I also think there's a difference between knowing that something is valuable, even valuable in a certain way, and knowing, it's harder to put this, but knowing what that value is. Right. So, for example, if... Uh, Many friends of mine whom I respect and who I think have very good taste tell me that a certain, uh, let's say, a certain art gallery has some really, really beautiful paintings in it. Then I've come to have a piece of knowledge about the value of those paintings. And I might even have a list of the paintings. I might be able to identify them. And I have good evidence. I have knowledge that they're valuable and that they're valuable maybe even in a particular way. Maybe I've read really quite uh, 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 detailed, sensitive descriptions of them. Okay. But it still seems that when I then go to the art gallery and spend time with the paintings, I'm learning something new about their value. Uh, It's not just looking at the paintings and confirming, ah, yes, my friends told me that they were beautiful and excuse me, and indeed they are beautiful. So it's not as though, yeah, so so the kind of epistemic access that you have to the painting is different when you're in front of it. Um, And I guess what I want to say is that something similar is true about persons. So I can be aware that all people are valuable, um, but it's quite a different thing to actually know, as I would put it, what that value is in each case or to, I guess, come into contact with the particular value of a person, which is then what grounds the general claim that they have uh, the same sort of value that, in a, in a, at a certain level that others have. So that's the first thing to say about what can happen through, I guess, really seeing something as opposed to simply knowing about it, about its existence. Mm-hmm. But the second more important thing to say is that there are certain kinds of value that are such that they're sort of, uh, yeah, they have a value that's incommensurable, as I would put it, with other values. That is to say that there's no straightforward way in which the value of, say, one person can be traded off against the value of another person. There's no straightforward way in which the values of two different people can be, so to speak, reduced to a single scale and measured against each other so that we can say, uh, you know, oh, this person has more of this kind of value than that person or less or they have equal value. It's just, uh, it seems a mistake to describe the values in that way. And I think that this isn't just some... Uh, ad hoc claim um, about right. the value of persons. I think this is a, you know, this is a, a fact that we find often when we consider different things that have different kinds of value. Even when we consider two things like 
I don't know, two beautiful gardens or uh, two beautiful paintings that have roughly the same kind of value. And as a result, it can be the case that uh, in order to respond properly to the value of a person, you need to kind of, as I put it, take the point of view of that value. Right. And that means yeah, seeing it differently from and responding to it differently from the way in which you respond to the value of, you know, to similar values found uh, elsewhere. Now, there's a very strong Kantian version of this claim, which Vellerman uh, pushes, according right. to which it's just a mistake um, to uh, trade off the values of persons against the values of other persons. Um, to appreciate and properly respond to the value of one person just is to refuse, or is in part to refuse, to compare it to the value of others. So if I'm really seeing the value of my wife as I stand on the pier, then uh, as part of the expression of that, I just don't think about whether she's more or less valuable than or equally valuable to the other person. Uh, then there's a sort of particular story according to which, as it happens, um, it's just a sort of, I don't know, a primitive moral fact, I suppose, that certain values in certain situations uh, have a certain pull on us or generate reasons for us that, that other similar values don't. Um, and what I try to do in the book is to bring those two sorts of stories together uh, to explain why there can be, at the very least, a very morally sensible, understandable uh, taking of the other person's point of view, as I put it, um, which does involve treating that value as special and responding to it in a particular way, even while recognising that there are other values around. So I guess it's a uh, the best case I can make for it in the end is to say that uh, in my view, it just really does capture most accurately the experience that we have, for example, when being you know, deeply concerned about the interests of our own children, while also being fully aware that there are lots and lots of other children around who are just as important as our children and matter just as much, and maybe even have greater needs. Uh, the best way to, experience, to, to explain that experience is not to say that you're ignoring the value of the other children exactly, certainly not to say that you think they don't have the value that your child has, but rather just to say that it's the value of your child that you're acquainted with and that you can see and that, uh, yeah, I suppose is drawing you on. Right, but um, doesn't that, that does, um, uh, that helps us to explain the permissibility of my partiality towards my child. Right. Um, is it yet an account, though, of the the actual obligation to um, – I mean, I, not only should I jump in and save my wife, I take it. Mm-hmm. It also should be – I should not jump in and save the other guy's wife, I take it. Um, and so, so there are two things, I guess, <laughs> that need to be explained uh, in an account of partiality. One would be the permissibility of showing – you know, uh, pref- you know, sort of giving uh, a partial treatment or, 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 or treating somebody with partiality. The other would be um, 
yeah, I think that uh, there's, there's, there, there would be something blameworthy if I were to, you know, leave my wife to drown and and jump in and save some some stranger's wife, right. or some some strange woman. Um, so, d- does the account uh, explain that? Right. Well, the yeah, the example that I use, which is sort of borrowed from Nico Kolodny, is uh, what do you say about someone who just finds that? Yeah, what do you say about me if I just find that? My neighbor's daughter, um, her value is just more evident to me and attracts me and draws me on in the kind of parenting way to a greater extent than, than does the value of my own daughter. Uh, sure, that just right. seems That's to a be a example. mistake and a failure to, to meet your duties. And look, the way that I try to explain this is by saying that uh, there always has to be a sort of uh, recognition that all of these encounters with the value of other people take place within a broader social context. And it is a legitimate question what kinds of relationships ought we to have in society generally and um, how ought we direct particular people into those relationships And the way that I think that question ought to be understood is by saying, how should we encourage or force people to really look at the value of certain other people? And it's from that more uh, social sort of story that I think any duties of partiality have to come. So it seems to me that uh, if... I find that I really am more drawn to be a parent to my next-door neighbor's child than to my own, then the thought that I ought to have is not, um, oh, I'm just seeing things wrongly, but rather I really am seeing, you know, conceivably, really am seeing the value of my neighbor's child properly and understanding what's important to her and why she ought to be looked after and so on. But I really ought to make an effort for social reasons, to avert my gaze and instead uh, make contact with the value of my own child. And the explanation of that is not that my child in fact has a value that my neighbor's child doesn't, but rather that I have certain responsibilities given to me by society or perhaps by nature or whatever else. And uh, one of those responsibilities, I think, can be a responsibility to love my child and not the child of, uh, of somebody else. It would, be, it would make things more complicated. It would be awful in lots of ways if I were to start, you know, <laughs> competing to try to be the parent of, of another child. So, uh, look, this is the point at which in the book, as I say, uh, the theory is not at all elegant. Um, right. and yeah, I guess my only sort of excuse is that I just think that's where the argument leads, but I do think that there is a tension between two each perfectly legitimate and indeed very important ways of thinking about special relationships. On the one hand, there are questions like, uh, how should marriage be structured in our society? Should we have marriage at all? Is it a deeply oppressive or exploitative institution, uh, those are good questions to ask. What should the parenting arrangements be in our society? Is it 
uh, unfair, is it unjust, inegalitarian, that children are always raised by their, or usually raised by their uh, birth parents, is there some better way that we could arrange things that would be better for the children, better for the parents, better for society overall? And I think those are very real, important uh, questions that we need to answer, but that have to be answered from a, so to speak, detached point of view. Mm -hmm. um, then I think that there's the perspective that we take when we are actually encountering real other people in our own lives. And from that perspective, the value of other people within relationships takes on its own kind of significance and in a way that then can't be simply referred back to the uh, impartial right. level. So the way I see it is that from a more detached level, we can kind of adopt certain desiderata, we could try to direct people, we can create certain social structures and understandings of responsibility which we hope will then direct people in their ordinary lives to be, uh, we may even require people in their ordinary lives to come to love or be exposed to the value of certain people rather than others. But, but once that encounter takes place, uh, it sort of takes on a, a life of its own. So I don't think that either approach to the moral significance of special relationships can be reduced to the other. We just have to live with the... Right. The tension between them. Right. Excellent. Well, you've been very generous with your time, so I really appreciate this. Um, let me just ask one one more question about the book, if I may. Yeah. Um, so it seems, and this is how the book ends, uh, um, in fact, um, there are some, uh, we might say, um, philosophical uh, virtues of the view. Um, and by that, I mean there are some virtues of the individual's view, as you articulate it, uh, for broader issues within moral theory. Um, particularly, um, it seems as if the individual's view is an attempt to do justice to duties and reasons of partiality without having to commit to suspicious entities like relationships or projects as the value bearers. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about um, th these particular sort of virtues of the view vis-a-vis -vis, um, broader issues in moral philosophy? Right. Well, a couple of things which I at least see as virtues, I don't think everyone would, uh, <laughs> are these. First of all, um, if my view is correct, then the work that it creates is not the work of adding extra valuable entities to the world, so to speak. Right. Uh, so if we start off by thinking, look, we know that people are valuable, um, but now in order to explain the ethics of special relationships, we have to say that relationships are valuable too and projects are valuable too. Um, my view instead directs us to start thinking not about adding extra, you know, further valuable entities to the world, but rather to think in more sensitive ways about how we ought to respond to the valuable things, persons that we know are already there. And what I think is that people have far too quickly assumed that if two things have the same kind of value, then they generate exactly the same uh, reasons, obligations, duties, permissions for all others. And uh, I suppose that I find it far more plausible to think 
that the way to understand agent relativity and the different reasons that different people have is, is by saying that, um, you know, different entities, even if they have the same sorts of value, can be such that their value generates different, different reasons for different people. So that's, that's one thing uh, at, a, at, a, at a relatively, um, you know, high theoretical level. Uh, but more directly, one thing I was definitely thinking of that I had in the back of my head in, in writing the book is uh, uh, the question of whether our special ethical relationships with other people are mirrored by our relationships with other kinds of entities like our countries, our states, our universities, uh, our tribes, and so on. And one motivation which I certainly have always had or have had in writing the book and also in some of my previous work is to sort of break the analogy between friendship and romantic loving relationships and relationships between parents and children on the one hand and relationships with political entities on the other. Mm. And it seems to me that one virtue, as I see it, of the view is that it enables us to give an explanation of special reasons that exist within special relationships with other people without then having to endorse patriotism and other kinds of group loyalties. And the reason why it does that is that the value that uh, individual persons have is just of a very different kind from the value, if any, that countries and states and tribes have. So what I hope is that it enables me to say that you can have a certain attitude towards the value of your friend and be getting it right because that value really is there. But if you have the same kind of attitude towards, for example, your country, then you're just getting it wrong. Uh, countries, in fact, don't have the sort of self-standing, irreducible, incommensurable value that persons do. And um, for me, that hopefully uh, serves to explain patriotism as a, as a pathology. <laughs> um, well, that sounds very uh, intriguing. Um, uh, so let me ask, um, uh, I know that you, your, your earlier work has been on um, uh, loyalty in particular. Um, uh, is, uh, is this connection now, um, particularly about patriotism, something that uh, you're going to be working on in the future? Uh, uh, look, it is something I'm thinking about. I do feel um, that I, so if you, if you have a, I don't expect you to, to, to read any of it, but if you have a look at my CV, I've kind of done patriotism to death. So uh. I'm not sure that there's a great deal more. Though I should say I have a, a co-authored book with Igor Primaratz and John Kleinig, which is coming out shortly, which is a sort of a, a debate about patriotism, three views about patriotism. Um, oh, excellent. And yeah, so some of this stuff actually, you know, I, I do write about in, it there. Uh, but no, the thing I've actually been thinking about most recently is the connection that the story about reasons that I give in the book might have with uh, better ethical questions, that is, questions about what kinds of reasons there are, what reasons are, and so on. And uh, when I, when the book was being refereed, um, one very, very good point that was made was that, among many others, but one good point that was made was that I seemed to have a commitment in talking about value and reasons to a sort of very metaphysically chunky and ambitious story about, you know, how value and reasons come to inhabit the world. Uh, right. So anyway, so 
there's a paper that I'm working on in which I try to say that you can actually get from a relatively uncontroversial, attractive general claim about the nature of uh, love and partiality, a claim which I argue for in the book, but which I think can also be found in many of the people I argue against in the book. It's one that a lot of us take. You can get from there to a rejection of certain uh, sceptical meta-ethical views on the grounds that if those meta-ethical views are correct, then it turns out that every time you love somebody, you make a mistake. That is, you take there to be a certain kind of value in the world, which, according to these meta-ethical theories, is not really there. And uh, by a somewhat circuitous route, I think that this actually grounds a good objection to, for example, the error theory uh, right. of morality, as well as certain <laughs> other, uh, you know, uh, you know, well, skeptical views generally. Views. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, excellent. Uh, I'll keep an eye out, by the way, uh, for that. Um, the error theory is a is a is a persistent fascination uh, of mine, at least. Um, so, um, Simon, I just want to thank you uh, uh, once more for 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 your time uh, and and for the book. Uh, the book is called, titled Partiality, uh, and uh, it's been really great talking to you about it. Thanks, Bob. Thank you very much for, for having me. Sure. Take care now. Thanks. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Simon Keller of Victoria University. We were talking about his new book, Partiality, published by Princeton University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.